0: Let's go be logical Christians. Today will be a bit of a buffet, but not a buffet of your choosing, more like when you were a little kid and you just got whatever was put on the plate for you. To make it fun, however, today will be brought to you by the letter M. See, how much fun is that? On today's episode, we'll start by taking a trip to the wonderful city of Muslimapolis, then we'll talk about the monsters that walk among us, and finally, we'll need to address the boldness with which you just throw your melons out there. So figure out which direction Mecca is, look out behind you, and put your melons away, you're offending people. Because here we am, meander, M. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, to the end of the age." Christians will recognize this as the Great Commission. This started as a command to the apostles to go and make disciples, you know, followers of Christ, and that command extends to all that came after the apostles. It had to have extended, as there was no way that twelve men would be able to fulfill the command on their own. But have you noticed how Christians are possibly the worst at doing this? And you've got the Mormons that are out there walking the blocks, knocking on doors, same with the Jehovah's Witness. Both of those are Protestant-based, but due to their changing and or adding to the Bible, changing who Jesus is, etc., they're not Christian. They are the definition of a cult. You've got the Catholics, who have a lock on the massive number of people with their head cheerleader, the Pope. I mean, every time the world needs a new Pope, most of us are aware what color smoke is puffing out of the compound. They're the televangelists that are out there fake-healing everyone, and they're well-promoted on TV. We've got the quasi-Christian churches that are seeker-sensitive in various degrees, you know, more interested in putting on events, fairs, rodeos, rocket launches, and every other manner of thing than they are of actually preaching the gospel. But the average Baptist church, for instance, the average Lutheran, Presbyterian, Methodist, those that are faithful to the gospel, faithful to correct biblical teaching, in other words, those that are truly disciples of Christ, we have no idea how to promote anything, it appears. There was a time when the church bell would ring out, especially on Sunday mornings, to call people to church to sing, to pray, to learn, you know, to worship. But now, you have sound ordinances, you have broken church bells, you have a lack of desire to worry about it, and they're mostly gone from the American landscape. Well, as we know, nature, much like my dog, abhors a vacuum. And where Christianity leaves a gap, Satan will gladly fill it in as fast as possible. In comes Islam. From APNews.com headline, Muslim call to prayer arrives to Minneapolis soundscape. Yep, if we're not going to ring the church bells, they'll set up speakers on the top of mosques and anywhere else they can and project the Adan across the city. I think I'm saying that right. The adhan is a melodious spoken word that calls the Muslim to prayer, of which they are mandated to do five times per day. The words translated into English are, God is the greatest, repeat four times. I bear witness that there is none worthy of worship except God, repeat two times. I bear witness that Muhammad is the messenger of God, repeat two times. Hasten to prayer, two times. Hasten to real success, two times. God is the greatest, two times. There is none worthy of worship except God. One time. Now, the melody, not exactly my cup of tea. I'm sure to the Muslim it's a beautiful thing, I guess. But now, as of this spring, Minneapolis is now the first large city in the country to allow the call to prayer to be blasted across the city via rooftop speakers by the two dozen mosques in the city. Now, to their credit, the Muslim community is being very careful how they're doing this. They're getting permission from the city. They're staying within the noise ordinances and the time restrictions for the city. They're meeting with those in the neighborhoods to explain what they're doing and why and take questions. A scholar of religious studies at Ohio State University, Isaac Weiner, said, quote, what we take for granted and what stands out is informed by who we think of ourselves as a community. We respond to sounds based on who's making them. Okay, now I include that quote in here for two reasons, basically. One, because it was said by Isaac Wiener, and the other is because I have no idea what he said. I mean, I've looked at this probably a dozen times or more, and I have no idea what he was trying to say. Uh, Maybe one of you guys out there can, can tell me What in the world he was saying? Anyway, doesn't matter. Let's move on. The AP article goes on to talk about how beautiful the call is and how people wept when they heard it for the first time in the city that they immigrated to. They have a large number of quotes from various Islamic leaders and others, and I want to grab a few of those, the best ones, for your listening pleasure. Jelani Hussein, director of the Minnesota chapter of the Council on American Islamic Relations, said, quote, "We want Muslims to fully exist here in America. It's incredibly important for Muslims to know their religious rights are never infringed upon." Hmm. Okay. Well, I wouldn't disagree with that. I'd imagine that none of us want our religious freedoms infringed. That said, as a Christian, uh huh. Oh. Now we continue. Tabitha Montgomery, the director for the Powderhorn Park Neighborhood Association, predicts that, quote, people will ask, what's that? and then say, that's cool. Oh, well, as long as Tabitha thinks it's all good, then the Powderhorn Park Neighborhood should be just fine. Trinity Lutheran Congregation Pastor Jane Buckley Farley whoops a woman. Pastor, seems like the Bible, something to say about that. We'll let that go for this minute. So the Pastrix, strike one, says that her church collaborates with the Dar al-Hiraj mosque on charity and outreach events. Ooh, that's strike two. Charity, maybe. Outreach? Yeah, like I said, uh, strike two. She said that she likes hearing the Adon from her office. Quote, it reminds me that God is bigger than we know. (laughs) Ha <laughs> ha! Strike three. Sorry she doesn't sound like a Christian to me. Repent and believe. I, I can't speak for her repentance, but her belief isn't in what the Christian Bible says. It doesn't appear. Hailed Sorto, and I guarantee I got that wrong, the pastor of the primarily Spanish St. Paul Lutheran Church, doesn't see his congregation having a problem with it. Okay, strike one. He said that he's thinking of getting their old bell back in working conditions so they can ring it out and become more visible. Oh. Well, okay, I, well, I'll i give him that one then. The imam for Abu Bakr Mosque, Mo'lid Ali, uh, these names, said, quote, we hope that through calling the adhan in public, it would actually bring more interest from the neighbors in knowing about the religion of Islam. To which I'd say, Yes, it probably will, and the fact that the Lutheran, allegedly, supposedly, Christian Protestant churches, don't really care, they have no problem, or actually they enjoy hearing it, that's a real problem. Remember the words of the call to prayer. The God they refer to is Allah, it's not the Christian God of the Bible. And if it's not God, eh, we know where it comes from, don't we? And it also affirms that Muhammad is the messenger of their god. Well, I'd agree that he was the messenger of their god, but that entire situation was uh, demonic. Probably directly satanic, but it reminds Ms. Pastrick's lady that God is big, so that's wonderful. So look. Although I personally wouldn't want this thing blasted across the town or city I live in, I also wouldn't make a stink about it as long as they went through all the proper channels and adhered to the statues and laws of the city. We do not live in a theocracy. We theoretically, and on paper, live in a representative republic. It's a great system, or it was when we actually were one, but whatever it is now, it's not a Christ-based system. It is still a human-based system. So with respect to freedom of religion, Muslims are just as free as anyone else in this country to practice their religion. So if they can do what they're wanting to do and stay within the laws, so be it. If I don't like it, I can petition to change the laws, to get a special restriction, or I can move. The biggest problem I have is the fact that this will play up to five times per day. This messaging is going to be drilled into the head of Muslims, Christians, Catholics, saved, unsaved, just pounded into their heads. This is literally a form of grooming or mental conditioning on the edge of brainwashing, intentional or not. How long before most everyone is humming or speaking or thinking along with the chant regardless of the fact that this is either a worship of a false god or simply a worship of any god, depending on your worldview. How many people, even knowing the translation, will be focused on this chant throughout the day? How long before people miss hearing this when they go on vacation or for some other reason aren't in an area where they'll hear it? This is akin to Pavlov's dog. Philippians 4.8 says, Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just— Whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, if there be any virtue, and if there be any praise, think on these things. Does this fit with that? Does it put the mind of the Christian into any of these spaces? I'd argue as I'd argue no, as worship of a false god cannot be honest, pure, praiseworthy, etc. And yes, I'm well aware that as Christians, we live in a world where we are around people that don't fit this verse either. We don't have virgin ears. None of us. I also realize that as Christians, we are watching TV and movies, listening to music or podcasts, watching YouTube, and looking on the internet at messages that in no way align with this verse, and we're doing it of our own free will. In the case of being willfully sinful, that is sin we need to repent of. With regard to just existing in the world, it's forcing us to either take captive every thought, or again, decide to willfully sin. But that being said, environment does matter. Have you ever been around someone that just can't speak without swearing, and day after day you're around that person? I know this can't just be me. You'll find yourself, at the very least, when something doesn't go right, thinking it, mouthing it, maybe exclaiming it, and then looking around like, who said that? And the more you're conditioned through your environment, the less shocked you'll be at yourself. Humans are only so strong and or stubborn, some more than others, but the constant drumming into your head will influence you if consistently repeated. If this call to prayer is broadcast five times a day, that's over 1,800 times every year. To think that wouldn't have an effect on your mind is simply foolish. The Christian caught in this environment will have a constant battle for his mind. The need to consciously, voraciously fight to focus and meditate on the one true God found only in the Christian Bible will take on an even greater importance lest they fall into a routine-based worship of Allah. Now, the Christian trapped in this environment, even if conditioned to hum or speak along with the chant, I don't believe would be guilty of willful sin, but they are in danger of being very negatively influenced, which could lead them down a path they don't want to go. I also don't believe that we can redeem something like this by simply saying, well, I replace Muhammad with Jesus and I say it to God. No, I don't think that's a great idea. Better than not, maybe, but still, I think I'd shy away from trying to do that. And the other problem I have is, although we may be behind the curve, we may be following the leader here, what are we doing? Our second Lutheran pastor in the story saying that it might be time to get their church bell back in working order, he's got the right idea, at least about that. I'll be honest, I don't have the answers for this one. In fact, my own small church is going through a brief church-wide effort to discuss and come up with an action plan to address this very thing right now. Without being a seeker-sensitive quasi-church, and especially now on this side of the COVID debacle, it's harder than ever to make your church and your faith known. So, I'll leave you with these questions, and you, maybe your church, will need to think about these. And, if you have any suggestions or answers, uh, I would be more than appreciative to hear about these. So, how are we making our beliefs known? How are we making our church known? How are we making our faith known? And how are we making our God known? Well, you may want to get some sort of a burn cream, maybe one of those huge silver suit things that you can walk through fire with, because this article is written in a way that will melt your face right off. If words could kill, Supreme Court Justice Amy Coney Barrett would look like she got grazed by a single 223 round from an AR-15, because as we know from our... Democrat brethren, one of those military rounds even coming close to you will vaporize you instantly. So found on Jezebel.com, and that should clue you in as to what kind of literary masterpiece we'll be dealing with, headline, Amy Coney Barrett's former religious group was accused of child sexual abuse. Oh, you heard that right, Amy Coney Barrett. And, and the words child sexual abuse have been associated together, so, so we know what that means. Eh, don't worry if you don't know though, the author Ms. Kylie Chung is here to help us understand. Now, Ms. Chung is what I would term a nasty, filthy, bitter communist. She describes herself as pro-abortion and anti-capitalist, so, I mean, you know, that's good. On her website, we find that she's a writer for Jezebel and was currently a writer for Salon. She lives in Los Angeles, has a political science degree from the University of Southern California, and has written two feminist books that are probably, uh, mm, yeah, you know. Now, she has graciously given us a smattering of her 2021 favorite articles, you know, that, that she wrote, and she's grouped them so we can more easily find our favorites. Uh, we can select from abortion, the criminalization of pregnancy, reproductive justice, rape culture, gender, climate justice, or my favorite, period justice. I, for one, am tired of exclamation points and question marks using the period to get all the glory. It's time we had some true period justice. And she covers this in articles such as ones entitled, The Politics of Men's Oh, ah. Okay, well, look, let's just move on, shall we? So here's the gist of her article that used, I don't know, way too many words to just say, uh, I hate Barrett and hope she gets launched into the sun. The group that we all heard about during the confirmation hearings, the People of Praise, are back in the news with the release of some documents related to alleged sexual abuse of children, as well as some other issues. I won't go into it here, but she describes the suit that one woman brought against her ex-husband and his new wife, or I don't know, something like that, related to their children. There are some other women that have written affidavits from time living with this couple as much as 50 years ago or more that said they were inappropriate and kind of weird. And, I mean, yeah, if, if what this mother is claiming actually happened, then at the very least, there was inappropriate behavior. Then Ms. Chung mentions that there were four women that made a claim last year that in the past, while they were members of the group, They were abused sexually and physically, and their demand is that the patriarchy be abolished, and the group put an equal number of women in top leadership positions as men, as right now, it's a men's only club leadership thing. And then we get to the smoking gun. Barrett lived in the same household in the 90s, as did her husband, as these people And Barrett worked in a women's leadership position with the group. So, so see, what? Not enough for you? Huh, okay. Well, from 2015 to 2017, she served on the Trinity School's board, which requires membership to the people of praise, as it's their school, and, quote, proudly bars the admission of children of same-sex parents as well as openly LGBTQ teachers. Those monsters! Then Miss Chung, in her blind rage, somehow sees this connection. Quote, Justice Barrett's affiliations to a group accused of sexual misconduct should surprise no one. In 2018, while serving as a judge on the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Seventh Circuit, She overturned a jury award to a teenager who was allegedly raped in jail by a guard. This cruelty toward survivors is ultimately inseparable from her goal of imposing pregnancy and childbirth on pregnant people without their consent. So let's break this down. Following the link to this leftist rag salon article written by Igor Derish regarding the overturning of the case, There wasn't apparently a question of if this guard did it, but the jury awarded a nearly $7 million award to be paid by the county for this abuse. The problem, and apparently the reason why Barrett overturned it, we'll cover that in a second, was because he didn't commit this act while he was in an official county capacity. It appears that he did this on his own time. Now, what does that mean? Well, I don't know, but I would assume that Barrett had solid reasons, as did the other two judges that made up the appeals panel that was decided unanimously that the jury decision was incorrect. So, despite the appearance that Kylie was going for, it wasn't like Barrett was operating independently, and it's not like she was a rogue judge of any sort. It was unanimous. This may be a technicality, but the law is the law. And even if Kylie feels like the girl should have been awarded $7 million, feelings don't dictate law. Now. Somehow, she connects this outrageous, lawful ruling as one of the three unanimous judges to Barrett, living in a home of some really weird, possibly perverse, possibly criminal people. Keep in mind, she lived with these people in the 1990s. She was part of the appellate court ruling in 2018, so, you know, like 25 or so years of separation there. But I guess she was serving on the school board around that time, so uh, you kind of see how it all links up there. And then she cobbles together the fact, I say, that her cruelty to survivors, you know, by following the laws as, as written, is ultimately inseparable from her, and I'll quote it again for you, quote, goal of imposing pregnancy and childbirth on pregnant people without their consent. So, so, so the person is pregnant, but Barrett is imposing, forcing, mandating that person to be what she already is. Okay. And since this is discussing the overturning of Roe, apparently Ms. Chung, who clearly did her 10 to 15 minutes of Googling to come up with airtight material for this article, missed the fact that an overturning of Roe doesn't actually mandate anything, it simply says the states should be deciding how they want to handle this. Neither Barrett, nor any justice that votes to overturn Roe, is forcing women, or, or men, because that's a thing that definitely can happen now, to become pregnant. Nor are they forcing them to even birth the child. They're simply saying the states can decide. Ms. Chung then shifts into another drama gear with, quote, Today, as we await the Supreme Court's inevitable, terrible decision on abortion rights, Barrett's ties to a religious group rooted in total patriarchal dominance and overrun with sexual abuse allegations are inseparable from her crusade on reproductive rights. Despite her laughable claims throughout her confirmation hearings that her ties to people of praise would not stop her from being impartial on issues of abortion and LGBTQ rights, we all knew what her confirmation to the court would mean for pregnant people, people of color, and LGBTQ folks. In 2006, she signed on to a newspaper ad calling Roe barbaric. Between 2010 and 2016, she was a member of Notre Dame's University Faculty for Life. So I'll take a brief look at the people of praise, as I just don't care that much in a second. But overrun with sexual abuse allegations? Uh, I don't think I'd call this overrun. It seems to me that she might be, I don't know, over-exaggerating to try and bolster a very weak argument at this point. And, and wait a minute, we now have people of color and LGBTQ? And Miss Chung, where's the other Q and the I and the A and the 2+, hmm? Apparently Kylie doesn't care about whatever the heck those are supposed to represent. She even says in the next paragraph that Barrett has seven kids, two of which are black, one with a disability, but she only has those to weaponize them, to drum up support. But apparently Barrett is racist now too, I mean, who knew, am I right? And her status as a working successful mother of seven, three of which are apparently weapons, will, quote, in the future likely be used to justify her support for discriminatory race, sex, and disability selective abortion bans that will eventually reach the Supreme Court. So now Ms. Chung, as I said, a bitter, nasty humanoid, is attributing what she would classify as future crimes to Justice Barrett. Oh, that never goes poorly at all. I mean... Wonderful. She links to a Washington Post article that basically laments the fact that Ohio made a law that you can't kill your baby for the simple reason that it has the markers of Down syndrome and says that cases like this will likely make it to the Supreme Court dealing with race and eugenics. Yeah, well, I think when we're talking about eugenics, maybe we need a full stop here. For those of you that don't know, very basically here, eugenics was the program in the United States. We started it to basically breed out the imbeciles, the whores, the druggies, the retarded, the colored, and races we don't like, and all the other undesirables. It's the program that a barely-known dictator named Adolf Hitler adopted to push for his master race, and, you know, kill six million Jews and millions of other people and groups that he found to be undesirable. The U.S. scientists, because Hitler so sullied their study of eugenics, changed the name to Genetics and shifted focus. Slightly. And now we're saying that if the overall case of eugenics comes to the Supreme Court, it would be hateful to stop it? I I wonder if Ms. Chung, quite clearly Chinese, realizes that Hitler may have been friendly with the Chinese at first, but he eventually got around to, you know, cleansing them as well. That's what her philosophy gets her, eventually. As for Barrett calling Roe barbaric, and being on the Notre Dame faculty for life— If she believes that unborn babies are literally human babies that simply aren't born yet, then wouldn't it be barbaric to shred them alive? What does Chung and others of her ilk expect us to do? Let's just say that it's up for debate, which it's not. Perception is reality. So if we perceive unborn babies as humans in possession of these same protections as all other humans— as humans, it can feel pain. As humans made in the image of God, what kind of monsters would we be to throw our hands up and say, eh, whatever. Chung is nothing but a young, clueless, self-absorbed, selfish, arrogant, angry little girl. She thinks she's got the wisdom of ages, and she's showing how ignorant she is. How she's even allowed to write for these leftist rags is beyond me. Nothing she said actually made any sense. There was no cohesion, no conclusion, She literally just vomited out a bunch of facts onto a screen and arranged them in an order. Then she used speculation, assumption, and baseless accusation, you know, to tie it all together. Then she likely sat back, sipped her double mocha blah blah a chino, and ate her avocado toast, and basked in the stench of her own self-aggrandized glory. I bet she's a dream to hang out with. Well, she finishes off her article with this, quote, Ultimately, the hypocrisy of Barrett... Once helping to lead a group that is alleged to have enabled rampant child sexual abuse, all while claiming to be pro-life, is jarring. But at this point, it's not even vaguely surprising. Well, I'll give her one thing. She does appear to be jarred. Other than that, it's pretty much more cowflop. Helping to lead. She was a leader of a women's group. Okay, whatever. Alleged to have enabled rampant child sexual abuse. If what she put in her article is it, as much as I agree it shouldn't happen at all, that does not fit the definition of rampant. If it was rampant, why didn't she make that abundantly clear in her article? Uh, claiming to be pro-life. Um, I love how the pro-murder contingent wants to tack everything on pro-life. What? You don't hug trees? Pff, call yourself pro-life. What? You eat meat? Pff, you call yourself pro-life? What? You don't like the Twilight movies? You call yourself pro-life. I wonder if they truly don't understand the boundaries of what that term is. So that article, eh, that was awful. On just about every level. It's like a middle schooler did a report last minute and just googled things and copied and pasted them in there. Just awful. Now quickly, this abusive, child molesting, patriarchal hate factory the people appraise. What is their deal? Well. If you look at their about page on their website, they appear to be an ax 2 charismatic commune type of community, and that's as far as I need to go. So they're taking the Acts 2, the first group of Christians, as the literal way to live. That's up to them. Although I believe that text was descriptive, not prescriptive, that was what they did as the first Christians, the first followers of the way. I would guess that That was partly done out of self-preservation, as in their society they were literally outcasts and persecuted for their beliefs. But that's fine. The people of praise can do this same thing if they want to. That would also mean that, of course, it would be a male-led society. Again, that's biblical. The men should be the elders and leadership of the church, or in their case, the community. If they stick to the biblical roles, then it will be, by definition, a patriarchal society. But, of course, men are evil, so, you know, we can't have that. So are there sexual deviants in that group? Did abuse take place, sexual, physical, on adults as well as children? Probably. You, You put a large group of people together like that, you've got sinful human beings in close contact. Just playing the odds, you'll have some of those mixed in, unfortunately. But one thing that Ms. Chung seems to not be getting, as she tries and fails to eviscerate Barrett, is that in every religion... And every non religious group, abuse has occurred. Catholics, Southern Baptists, cults, Boy Scouts, public schools, private schools, colleges, businesses, and everywhere else you can think of, and from what she described here, in much larger numbers and to much greater extent. In fact, for reference, the website Not the Bee posted an article at the end of May, I think it was reposted from Fox News that as of May 20th, at least 135 teachers or teacher's aides have been charged with child sex crimes ranging from child pornography to the raping of students so far this year. That's about one per day. That's what we know of. But those teachers and aides aren't threatening Chung's perception of her rights, you know, to kill unborn babies. Plus, there's little doubt that most, if not all, of them align with her politically, so no need to call them out. This doesn't justify even one case of abuse by anyone, including the people of praise. It's just pointing out the selective hypocrisy, or the hypocritical selection, by Ms. Chung and her ilk in general. Look, we're a sinful people, given up by God to pursue our lusts, desires, and deviancies. The rage she's feeling is because she is a lost, unrepentant, self-centered, self-important sinner. Now, at this point, she wouldn't agree, nor would she care. Maybe the Holy Spirit opens her eyes at some point in the future? Maybe not. But at this point, she's addicted to her outrage. She's addicted to her perceived oppression. She's addicted to her own self, and she's found a platform that accepts her just terrible writing skills, and she loves it. Sadly, she's a person who has no joy. And if she dies in her sins, this will literally be the happiest she'll ever be even as embittered as she is in this life. As much as she feels this life is terrible, that she's being oppressed and abused, this will be the closest thing to heaven she'll ever experience, if she dies in her sins. I know that part of the entire premise of this podcast is uh, me, for lack of a better term, whining about things. I get that. Hopefully you can hear that I'm generally having fun with these. They're done very tongue-in-cheek. Most of them are done from a more incredulous viewpoint, almost amused at the lunacy that's taking place in this world. But the other reason I started doing this podcast was honestly a little selfish. I wanted to force myself to be able to look at this craziness through a Christian lens. Some stories more so, some less. I didn't want to just rob myself of the joy I have as a Christian by simply complaining about this world. I wanted to practice what I actually truly believe, but I probably don't show enough that the Bible is applicable today, and as Christians, no matter what the circumstance, we have or should have the joy, 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 joy down in our hearts. Raise your hand if you just said where. This world is awful. Sin is rampant. Hate is everywhere. Evil seems like it's winning. For the Christian, as terrible as this sounds, this world is literally our hell. That's the polar opposite of Ms. Chung. For the saved individual, this world is the absolute rock bottom, the worst, most evil, vile thing we'll ever deal with. And inside of that, we have so much to be thankful for, to praise God for, so many blessings in our lives, and we know it. We really do know it. If only we look past the temporary and look to the eternal, look past the hard times and look to the truth of our faith. This is why we can sing, laugh, and endure with praise and worship. Psalm 62 says, in part, For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence, for my hope is from Him. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be shaken. On God rests my salvation and my glory. My mighty rock, my refuge, is God. Trust in Him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before Him. God is a refuge for us. So be joyful. Rest in God be hopeful. God is our rock in salvation. Keep fighting the good fight. Refuse to compromise. Stand up for what you know is right. Tell others. And no matter how dark it may get, no matter how tempted you are to dive into the depths of despair, the slough of despond for my Pilgrim's Progress fans, keep your eyes fully fixed on Jesus and let his light lead you in joy and peace. Well, as June 19th approaches, surely you've got your tree and decorations out. You've put up the lights, made the plans, you're completely ready to celebrate. Now, as a Gallup poll from 2021 showed, in general, you probably don't know what I'm talking about. Nationally, only 37% know a lot or some of what I'm talking about. 69% of blacks, 40% of Hispanics, 31% of whites know a lot or some. 47% of Democrats, 37% of independents, 23% of Republicans know a lot or some. So what am I talking about? The now national holiday of Juneteenth. Even more telling, and honestly I have no problem with this if done correctly, 32% of 55 year old or older, 38% of 35 to 54 year old, and 42% of 18 to 34 year old know a lot or some about this holiday. So people are slowly becoming more educated about this day. Well, despite what you might think, this isn't going to be about Juneteenth. But just for context, as the Gallup poll is probably accurate, you probably know little to nothing about what I think is our newest federally declared holiday. The bottom line, and if you want more info, you can go to the link in the notes, this is the day that commemorates the announcement of General Order No. 3 by Union Army General Gordon Granger, which proclaimed freedom for slaves in Texas, the last state of the Confederacy with institutional slavery. This is different than the Emancipation Proclamation issued on January 1st, 1863, by President Abraham Lincoln. This still wasn't the complete end of slavery, which existed in Delaware and Kentucky until the ratification of the 13th Amendment on December 6th, 1865, and the last remnants of slavery ending in Indian territories in 1866. But for whatever reason, this is the date that has been celebrated since 1865 and has become the accepted holiday to celebrate the end of slavery. And that's fine. I have no problem with that. A federal holiday? Well, I have no problem with that either. It, it at least commemorates a very momentous event. But, as is our custom, we must make everything racist when attempting to celebrate anything pertaining to people of color, specifically blacks. And I say pertaining to people of color because you just don't see this with other ethnicities, not races, as there's only one single solitary human race. Found on usatoday.com headline... Children's Museum of Indianapolis pulls Juneteenth watermelon salad from menu after criticism. So here's the gist. The museum is planning a full celebration with local artists, live performances, activities, etc., and they published it on their Facebook page. But one black Karen saw their pictures of the food that was going to be offered and was offended because that's what she was wanting to be, that they included a so-much-racist watermelon salad she instantly replied to the post because she wants the attention with quote so y'all decided hey let's celebrate by perpetuating offensive stereotypes y'all really thought this was a good idea now my guess is that yes they probably assembled all the higher-ups The large donors, the board, the curator, probably all whiteys, all got together in a dimly lit boardroom, mahogany panelled, of course, huge table, lots of cigar smoke, and brainstormed ideas of how they could appear to celebrate Juneteenth and yet make their overt racism and hatred of all things black known. Still speculating here, I'd guess that all the money they're spending on artists, activities, signage, banners, special menus, and advertising is all nothing more than a cover-up for their pinnacle of racism, their shining star, their coupe de grace, as it were, watermelon salad. Take that, Blacks! The museum came out and instantly issued an apology. What I would have done was said, That's stupid. Stop being offended by everything. All you want is attention, and to feed your craving to be offended— And we're not playing your game. If you don't like it, don't come. And don't eat the fresh, nutritious, and delicious salad. But that's probably why I'll never be in such a position. Anywho, they apologized as such. Quote, As a museum, we apologize and acknowledge the negative impact that stereotypes have on communities of color. The salad has been removed from the menu. We are currently reviewing how we may best convey these stories and traditions during this year's Juneteenth celebration, as well as making changes around how future food selections are made by our food service provider. And as you'd assume, that was good. People commented that it was okay, it was just an innocent mistake, no harm, no foul. Thank you for putting on the celebration. (laughs) No, just kidding. They continue to be eviscerated online by a bunch of keyboard warriors. One thing I've noticed about these woke lefties, they are literally the definition of hive mind. They've all been given the same flowchart of what to say and how to respond, apparently, because there's never unique independent thought in the bunch. They say the same things, all of them, the same exact things. The museum went on to say in their apology, quote, The team that made this selection included their staff members who based this choice of food on their own family traditions. Now, this gives the implication that those that developed the menu are themselves black. The USA Today article goes into why watermelon is considered racist, which I'll cover from a different article in a moment, and then listed some of the Facebook comments. And to their credit, they posted some from white, some from black. Some were fine with this being on the menu. Some thought that this was literally murder. We've seen this before. Back in February, a black school cafeteria worker asked for permission to make fried chicken to celebrate Black History Month for the school for one lunch. It was her fried chicken. It was... Per tradition, it was approved and roundly deemed unbelievably racist and offensive. I covered this in a past episode. It was episode 12 entitled Everything is Backwards in a segment entitled Kentucky Fried Racism. If you're interested on my take from that ridiculousness, the link is in the notes. So briefly, as much as possible briefly, why is watermelon considered an offensive or racist food when associated with blacks and also why do I insist on spelling watermelon with two l's no matter how many times the red squiggly you spelled it wrong dummy line pops up under the word well to answer that I mean, the racist thing not the spelling thing I went to the Huffington Post as they would be one of the most liberally biased rags out there with some of the most angry yet mostly sane writers on this subject And I wasn't disappointed. I I actually, I mean, seriously, I actually learned a lot. Now, keep in mind, I didn't fact check all this guy's claims. I think you'll see why I didn't. It came off as very credible. The author, a black man, Theodore Johnson, gave a very comprehensive analysis of why this melon is offensive to some blacks. He starts by saying that his mother ate watermelon while pregnant with him nearly every day. He ends by saying he's so glad she did as she was trying to feed him healthy, nutritious food he also said that he has by chance a large deep greenish oval birthmark on his hand which gives the appearance of being a watermelon now you can read his article link in the notes i think it's really worth reading but just to get down to his reasoning so i'm just boiling down some of his basic points here he says first early in the days of slavery Caricatures of very dark-skinned children with overly red lips stretched to extremes while chomping on watermelon was commonplace. He said that during the post-Civil War era, racist postcards called coon cards started showing up. Many of them depicted a wide-eyed black person about to devour some watermelon. The Jim Crow Museum of Racist Memorabilia has many items depicting blacks being infatuated with watermelon minstrel shows a form of theater commonly with actors in blackface latched onto blacks loving watermelons as part of their stick one song developed for these shows was entitled n-word because that's what we have to say n-word loves a watermelon ha 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 and apparently this song's melody was played from neighborhood ice cream trucks for decades Now, more recent examples that he gave of using this as a racist trope are when Jackie Robinson broke the color barrier in baseball, opposing fans threw watermelon rinds at him. And when Barack Obama was elected president, pictures were created showing the White House with rows of watermelon crops on the lawn. He then points out that blacks aren't even the largest consumers of watermelons. Whites eat the most by quantity, and Asians and Hispanics eat the most per capita. And then he points out that... uh, With the prevalence for heart disease and hypertension in the black community, they probably should eat more watermelon as part of a healthier diet. Like I said, especially for the Huffington Post, this was what I consider to be a very even-handed, emotionally neutral article written by someone that has a vested interest in making the real history known. So, is what this museum did racist? Well, I've spoken about this before, just, just recently in fact, that intent matters. Did the museum actually intend to be racist here? The short answer is no. The longer answer, I mean, that's also no. The fact that the food service provider used personal family customs of how they celebrate Juneteenth says that this was not a racist move. So was it tone deaf? Well, I mean, one could argue that it could have been. But as I said in a past episode, it takes two to be offended. One to be offensive, the other to be offended. Both should strive to not be those things. Should the museum have apologized? I mean, it's fine. That's up to them. I don't think it was necessary personally. But since they did, it should have been accepted and the discussion stopped. But as I said earlier, we have too many people that have been conditioned to look for things to be offended about and they're addicted to the rush of the outrage they manufacture from their alleged findings. Now I, a Facebook aficionado, commented back on the museum's page under their apology, and I asked a few what I think are simple but pertinent questions. First, how is watermelon in any form a racist thing? Next, would this woman complain on any other day, or is it just racist on certain days? Next, are Blacks that like watermelon racist? Next, has this woman ever eaten watermelon or does she ever plan to eat it in the future? And if so, is she now or will she become a racist? Are whites that like watermelon racist? Is watermelon only racist if a white person is in any way involved with the black person acquiring said watermelon? And then finally, Are blacks considered Uncle Tom's if they eat watermelon on Juneteenth? I think these are important questions that uh, that really kind of deserve some answers. Now, I look around the ethnic food stereotype world, and we all know that Italians love pasta and Chinese love their rice. Mexicans can't get enough tacos. Irish fans of potatoes and whiskey and plain Jane American whites. They love mayo and cottage cheese. Mm -hmm. Mmm. And there are a bunch of other stereotypes. Are those not racist? Maybe it's because they don't have the same past. Okay, I'll give you that. But how long before watermelon can just be watermelon again? Or fried chicken just be fried chicken again? Or purple drank just be purple drank again? Just because they're associated with an ethnicity, do they have to be racist forever? Regardless of their auspicious beginnings or racist past usage, Can't they just be food again? For that matter, how many blacks even know this history? I'd wager not many. They just know that watermelon is racist. But if you don't know why, or if the reason why no longer exists, then does it have to continue to be propagated? It seems like forgiveness should play a part in there somewhere. In fact, nobody is alive today that suffered through the minstrel songs or the coon cards And nobody is alive today that created or performed the minstrel shows and songs or created the Coon Cards. So there is nobody left to apologize and nobody left to apologize to. Can't we just let forgiveness rule and, you know, move on? No, the answer is no. No, we can't. Without racist outrage, without drumming up division, certain political parties who shan't be named can't keep duping certain demographics who also shan't be named, into continuing to unwittingly vote them in as modern-day slave masters. Now, all that said, although admittedly this is taken out of context, but being used for the same concept, Romans 14, starting in verse 13, Paul is exhorting Christians not to be a stumbling block to others, to not intentionally cause offense, to not force others into violating their conscience by what you do. Verse 13b says, Decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. Verse 16 says, So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. Verse 19 says, So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding." Taking this to a humanist principle, should we be cognizant of things that offend others? Sure. And I'm probably pointing many a finger at myself as I'm saying this. As I covered a few episodes back and reiterated here, we should strive to not be purposefully, consciously offensive to others. And I would say especially when there are very specific circumstances behind why it's offensive. We don't want to intentionally cause someone else to be angry because we simply don't care if they get angry. But what didn't happen at this museum is them throwing down a menu while saying, we know how you blacks like your Negro food, so here you go. Which leads to the second half of the equation. Did Black Karen have to make a comment back to the museum's post for all to see? Was she truly offended, or was she more interested in being the first to throw fire back at the museum to show how smart she is by seeing that first? Did anyone of any color skin need to be offended by a salad? No. But if someone was, if someone was truly offended they very simply could have scrolled to the top of the museum's Facebook page where they would have found the phone number, an email address, the physical address, or a direct link to send them a direct message. If they were truly offended, they could have brought it to their attention quietly, and I bet all would have been well, all would have been taken care of, as it was quite clear, overly clear, that the museum did not intend to offend anyone. But what we have is one side of the equation being ignored. She wanted to be offended and outraged, as I guarantee she finds her identity in that. In fact, looking at her Facebook page, I mean, she's not the worst, but she's definitely decided that she's always been and always will be oppressed. So her identity is in that oppression, and the perpetual offense, well, that's just a natural result. Nothing will ever be good enough, as she will always find something because she is always looking. So knowing this, what do we do? Well, we do our best. We love God. We love our neighbors. We try to display God's love in what we do. We try to be aware of what we do and what we say. If we make a mistake, we admit the mistake and move on. In the case of this article, this salad, it could have been handled by apologizing for any offense it may have caused. However, here's why it was included, and this is why it will continue to be included. Like I said, we do our best with what we know to be true, not based on the constantly shifting sands of truth this world tries to manipulate, not based on the outrage of a few that will never be satisfied. Whether Christian or not, we do our best. We follow our conscience. For Christians, we seek guidance. We pause and check our intent before acting. And then we do our best. So with that, go do your best. And with that, we've reached the end of this episode of the Logical Christian Podcast. If you've made it this far, the odds are you liked what you heard. I'd greatly appreciate a like, a comment, and a review if you're so inclined. As you likely already know, it all helps with the algorithms. Don't forget to subscribe so you can be notified whenever a new episode drops. And finally, if you found this podcast useful or entertaining, share it with your friends, your enemies, your in-laws, your outlaws. If you want to reach me, you can do so at lcpodcast at outlook.com or increasingly, I'll be using at lcpodcast on Getter. Lawrence J. Peter said, Against logic, there is no armor like ignorance. But Jesus told us that if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. So stay in the word, stay logical, stay faithful. And until next time, God bless.